Welcome to this edition of the Bears Den podcast. I'm Matt Bear. The movie Hoosiers is universally adored among sports fans, especially hoops junkies. It is loosely based on a magical season from 1954 of a small Indiana school called Milan who made it all the way to the Indiana State Championship, where their small school, which had an enrollment of 160, took down much larger Muncie Central, whose school size was 1,600. In the movie, the winning shot in the state title game was made by a sharpshooter named Jimmy Chitwood. Back in 1954, that game-winning shot was made by a young man named Bobby Plump. Bobby is now 84 years old and still lives in Indiana. I connected with Bobby to talk about that magical season where Milan made history, how much of the movie Hoosiers is accurate based on what happened with their team, and his thoughts on the Indiana State basketball tournament switching to a multi-class system. I can't imagine what it was like to make a basket for your team to win a state tourney in a major upset, let alone have that moment made into a movie. Bobby does a great job going back in time to share those details with us. Before we get going, let's recognize our two sponsors. First, it's Midwest Basketball Training. Pat Freeman and his team do a great job working with youth basketball players in the metro area. Check out their website at MidwestBasketballTraining.com for more information on their new facility and youth and player development opportunities. The housing market is hot right now, and if you need someone to help guide you through the process, you should connect with Steve Brown from Coldwell Banker Realty. The South Dakota State Hall of Famer is a proven winner, and his ability to deliver on-time, effective results greatly benefit the first-time homebuyer, as well as those looking to purchase their next dream home. Coldwell Banker Realty and Steve Brown are your trusted guide. Contact him today to start the process at 763-438-9511. That's 763-438-9511. Now let's head into the Bears Den for this conversation with Bobby Plump. All right, excited to be joined by Mr. Bobby Plump today and... Bobby, thanks for for being here and wanted to just, uh, I guess, get in right away with you as a player. Did you love basketball right away? Was that kind of your first love or did you grow into it or or where was that journey for basketball for you? Well, basketball was uh, uh, kind of ingrained. You have to go back. uh, You know, I was born in 1936. There wasn't a whole lot to do back in those days. and uh, World War II hit, and uh, I lived, I, the team I played for is Milan High School, but I lived in a town three miles from then called Pierceville, Indiana. We might have had 150 people on a good day. And my father gave me a, uh, a basketball and a goal and a backboard when I was in the fourth grade, and I put it up as high as we could in one of our buildings uh, and the neighborhood uh, three or four boys would come over and we would play there and then the guy next door had a better place so they put that up so basketball was always my love uh, uh, baseball also 
I played four years of baseball at Butler also, and in, in addition to basketball. But basketball was the game. You have to understand there, there weren't any professional teams in Indiana, and the Indiana High School Basketball Tournament was the premier event other than the Indianapolis 500 race in Indiana. We drew from 1954 or five until the end, uh, well, actually till 1990 for your fans listening. We drew to our state tournament better than a million people every year. We had a contract the last 10 years before they changed it to a multi-class tournament. We had a contract with the TV station uh, that paid $500,000 a year to televise our tournament. Wow. Uh, so if you grew up in Indiana, you live basketball. Uh, the people of Indiana uh, from the 40s on, uh, even into the 90s, just like the NCAA today where the, all the uh, people do their brackets, they did that in Indiana. Huh. We had a television broadcast of two hours showing sectionals, regional, semi-state, and finals drawings, and then the members of the family would pick it all the way out to the state tournament and see who won. Uh, so basketball was, you could say it was in our blood. Yeah. Well, the big question was, Bobby, did people wager on those brackets like they do on the NCAA tournament brackets now? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, we could wager maybe a penny or a dime. We didn't have very much else. <laughs> but it was, it was the... Uh, uh, you were the champion if you won in your family. And then you, you, you could compare it uh, at school. You compare it with all the, uh, the students at school. So it was a lot of fun. That's great. And so who, who was your teacher growing up, you know, Bobby, for the game of basketball? Was it a relative? Well, was it we, a, uh, a specific coach? Like who kind of taught you the game? Pardon me? Yeah, who kind of taught you the game? Well, we were self-taught for a long period of time. And then uh, our eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade coach was Mark Combs. And that's when we first learned about the rules of basketball and what a forward and a guard and, and center were and, and what we should play. And my first two years in high school, uh, my freshman year, I didn't make the varsity. And my first two years in high school, there was a coach by the name of Herman Grinstead, Mr. Grinstead. We thought he was an old man. He might have been 40, you know. And uh, unfortunately, he was fired by the superintendent after we had just had the best season in Milan's history as sophomores. And a young gentleman by the name of Marvin Wood, who was all of 24 years old, had coached for two years, was put in the position. And that's where we really learned basketball. He was fundamentally sound. He played at Butler University for Mr. Hinkle, and, uh, which is now Hinkle Fieldhouse. Uh, Mr. Hinkle only coached at Butler from 1920 to 1970. Uh, I think he was just going to stay and see if he liked it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, from 1927 uh, or 28 to 1970, he was head football, head baseball, head basketball, and athletic director at Butler. 
Uh, so Marvin Wood uh, is, is a gentleman. He's the reason. We had some talent, obviously. You, you don't go to the state tournament or, or win it without it. But he's the reason that we won. Uh, our tournament, we had 752 schools that vied for the uh, championship in 1954. And you're probably familiar with how that worked. Maybe your fans aren't, but all 752 schools start out at the sectional. There are 64 sites. Those 64 winners go to the regional. And you play two games every Saturday. Uh, there's four teams in each uh, regional site. And then it goes to the semi-state or the Sweet 16. And then it goes to the Final Four. Milan had never won a game in that second level, the regional, until Marvin Wood came there. And we went his first year, we went all the way to the state finals, the final four. By the way, the NCAA had to call the Indiana High School Athletic Association and see if they had copyrighted Sweet 16, Elite Eight and Final Four. You'd never hear that from the NCAA. They hadn't. So it created a lot of excitement. Uh, obviously, never having won a game in that second level and then going a 25-year-old coach and, and we're at the uh, uh, final four. Uh, it, I mean, we were inundated with all kinds of uh, questions. And, and so the next year, that just followed through. So we really learned it from Marvin Wood. And then it was refined by Mr. Hinkle when I went to Butler University. Yep, that's great. And now, now that we get into your kind of the, the championship year a little bit here, Bobby, but the year before, like you said, you guys made the state semifinals. So, you know, I guess that's what's a little bit different from the movie Hoosiers that we'll get into in a little bit here. But uh, you guys weren't, I guess, really like a, an underdog, you know, I guess, so to speak, you were a little bit like you said, you'd never won um, in the school's history games kind of on that level. But uh, it's, it's not like you came out of nowhere, really, when you went to the state semifinals the year before, right? We did come out of nowhere. Then 1953 was more like the movie Hoosiers than 54. Uh, to give you an idea, in 1953, that second level again, the regional, okay, we won the sectional. Milan had won four sectionals before, but they were always defeated the first game of the regional. So we won the sectional. Uh, going to the regional, we played a school, uh, Knightstown Memorial, which was a home for orphan soldiers and sailors originally, and then a home for orphan kids. They had a good basketball team. One of their players, uh, uh, Jim Brown, played for the Philadelphia Eagles in their championship football thing. But anyway, here's the, 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 the where we played uh, uh, seated 5,000. Milan, the high school town that we went to, was a town of 1,100. We had 162 total students in the top four grades. Knightstown had us down nine points with a minute and 48 seconds to go. No three-point plays. Marvin Wood had brought to us a full-court trap defense, half-court trap defense. We stole the ball two or three times and with zero, well, before we get to zeros on the clock, 
we had the ball and we're down two points. When we threw the ball in, the timer forgot to start the clock. I mean, people are standing, throwing things on the floor, screaming their heads off. The officials finally saw it, called timeout. They estimated 10 to 11 seconds, ran off. They went over to the scorer's bench. We're in the huddle at a timeout, and they must have been there three or four. It seemed like a century, but we didn't know what was going on. They never took any time off the clock. So when we threw it in and play resumed, Ray Kraft, who was a substitute on our ball club, hit a layup and tied the score. We're going into overtime. At the end of the first overtime, the score is tied. We go to the second overtime, and back then, Matt, the first two points won the game. Mm-hmm. You could score a free throw. They score a free throw. You score another free throw. You're the winner. I hit two free throws. We won the first game in the history of Milan High School at the regional. Fans came in coat and ties back then. Four fans showered with us after the game. So things were a little exciting at the point. So there's a double overtime. That night, we won a two-point game against a number five team. We didn't know they were number five. We didn't get information from Indianapolis. We got it from Cincinnati. We're only 40 miles from Cincinnati. There's a two-point game. We won the regional. The first game of the semi-state was an overtime. We won that game. And then we won the uh, semi-state. It's still a record. We held a team to two field goals. We beat them 43 to 21. And so we're in the final four. And then we got it handed to us pretty well there. So that, we were total underdog. I mean, nobody had ever heard of Milan, really. And in 1954, David Halberstrom, the Pulitzer Prize writer, uh, was writing an article for a national magazine. And he called me one time and, and had me look up some statistics. I had 20 boxes and stuff I haven't opened. And so I'm looking through there and I found out that in 1954, by the time we hit Muncie Central, which was the final game, Muncie Central had won more state tournaments than anybody. We had a 15-point winning margin through the tournament. So 54 looked on paper pretty easy to us. And the only reason, now Woody brought to us an offense, and I'm going to explain what the offense is. And he introduced it the last game of our season in 53 he didn't want us to get hurt, and we're playing a county rivalry, Osgood, and their gym was very small. They had a bunch of big guys. He didn't want us to get hurt, so he said this. He said, here's what we're going to do. He said, Bob, you go to center circle, take the ball, and you get in the, the corner down below, white in that corner, Ingle out of bounds in 10-second line, Kraft out of bounds 10-second line. Now, what does that sound like? The four-corner offense? Yeah. Right? Yeah, you thought Dean Smith invented that at North Carolina, didn't you? We used it to be safe, and it worked so well. We beat them 30, uh, 35 to 17 that we started using the four-corner offense as an offensive weapon. Dean used it as a stall. But we beat in 54 
there was a gentleman by the name of Oscar Robertson. You may have heard of him. Right. And we played them in the finals of the semi-state using the four-corner offense and beat them 65 to 52. Those 65 points were the third highest scoring team in the final 16 teams. The team that beat it, Christmas Addicts was Oscar's team. They beat Columbus 67 to 66 in the morning game, and we defeated them 65-52 that, that night. We used a four-corner offense and beat Terre Haute Gersmar, who was in the final game the year before, 60 to 48. So we were a pretty high scoring team, frankly, using that particular offense. No team in the tournament ever got ahead of us once we got ahead and went into the four corners, except Muncie Central. We had them down, the, uh, we had Addicts down at six points at halftime, beat them 65 52. We had Gersmar down four points beat them 60 to 48. We got Muncie down six points. And here we are going into the final. Uh, we, we were hit 23 to 17. We get into the final uh, fourth quarter and we're behind 28 to 26. So they score 11. We score three. Marvin Wood had me stand at midcourt and I stood there for four minutes and 17 seconds behind two points in the most important game in our career at the state finals. 15,000 fans are standing, screaming their heads off. Nothing's going on for four minutes and 17 seconds. That created some interest and excitement also. Yeah, I can imagine. So as, as we're in that 1954 season, Bobby, like you said, you kind of make it all the way to the championship game. You guys knock off Oscar Robert, Robertson's team and Crispus addicts and you know like in the movie you guys play the final in, in Hinkle Fieldhouse set on the campus of Butler and in the movie you know they have the tape measure come out and coach <laughs> has them measure the rim and and stuff like that and I don't know if that's true but I, I ran across a quote Bobby where one of your teammates you know you guys are from a small town and I think a lot of farming went on in those days and he kind of looked up and said you know this is a big place you could fit a lot of hay in here is is that pretty one of our teammates that one of our teammates said that we didn't measure it uh woody figured that we knew it was 10 feet and 15 feet but we're you gotta realize here's a here's a town of 1100 by the way our gym seated a thousand we had a thousand season ticket holders and and we played most of our games away because there was a school for sales that had a 2000 seat but here's a 15,000 seat at Butler University then, now Hinkle Fieldhouse. And that's a big place, even when it's full, when it's empty. And, you know, we were, uh, we would uh, have our bags and we're walking in. Here's 12 players and, and looking around and uh, having fun. And we come to the floor because Woody brought us by there before we went down to the dressing room. And just as you said, Bob Engel, one of our starting guards, said, oh, you could put a lot of hay in this place. And that kind of broke it up a little bit. Uh, but for your fans, 15,000 people were there for the morning games and the night games. Okay, you could buy a ticket for $3.50. You saw two games 
well, morning and mid-afternoon, and then the championship that night. 15,000 fans. We have a restaurant uh, bar, sports bar in Indianapolis called Plump's Last Shot of All Things. And there are people that come in there saying that they paid $25 scalping tickets to get into that 15,000-seat field house to watch us. That's, that's how that's much it Yeah, that's great. And so during the game, like you said, Bobby, really low scoring game, like you, you talked about the coach even had you, you know, hang out at half, half court there for a little bit and just hold the ball. Um, but we get down to the end of the game and, you, you know, the ball's in your hand um, for, the, for the, the last shot. And the one thing I want to kind of talk to you about, Bobby, is um, you, you were um, a shooter of the jump shot. Was, was that something that was going on at the time, or were you one of a very few people that were actually shooting a legitimate jump shot then? Actually, Matt, I think I was the only true jump shooter in uh, the final four. It was just transitioning at that point. There were some uh, jump shooters around. I, I saw uh, the reason I started shooting a jump shot, when I was a freshman, I was watching the varsity practice, and there was a guy by the name of Bill Gorman on our varsity. He didn't play very much, but I watched him, and and he was shooting a jump shot. I had never seen it before, and I I thought, you know what? I, I could get that off quicker than a two-hand set or, or a push shot. So I did that in practice a couple of times, and Mr. Grinstead came up to me and said, now, Bob, if you'll practice that this summer, go from the top of the key, either side, go from each side and come in and shoot that jump shot. And if you get it down, you might be able to make the varsity next year. Well, I worked on that thing all through the summer and true enough, it did come true. So it was just, it, uh, it was just transitioning at that point. There were still, Bob Engel on our team still shot a two-hand set shot. Larry Costello in the NBA still shot a two-hand set shot. Dolph Shea shot it over his head yet. So the jump shot, uh, Bob Pettit was the first NBA player that I remember could truly shoot a good jump shot. But in high school, it was just starting to come in. Okay. So you see so very well for me, by the way. I'm glad he's a, I'm glad I practiced it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So you guys are are tied and in, in the balls in your hands, Bobby. What was the play call or what do you remember about the end? Were you nervous? Um, were you confident going? Well, here's what uh here's what happened. We uh when we started uh play after I held it for that uh, period of time, Ray Kraft hit a bucket and tied the score 28-28. We got a rebound or stole the ball. I don't remember which one. And I was fouled. I hit two free throws. So we're ahead 30 to 28. We got a rebound or I think we stole the ball. And in the huddle, Woody said, hey, if we get ahead, we don't have to shoot. Make them foul us. And we were pretty good free throw shooters. So we weren't supposed to shoot. And Ray Kraft, the other guard, <laughs> found himself wide open. That wasn't anybody within three or four feet of him. And he went up and laid the ball up and it rolled around and came out. And I thanked him ever since because they came down and tied the score. 
Now, I get across 10-second line. Ray gives me the ball. There's 48 seconds to go. And I hold it again. And people are standing, screaming again. We're tied this time and until 18 seconds. And I didn't say in the huddle, I'll make it and all that. Here's what happened in the huddle. And, and Woody was just calm as can be. You know, when, when we uh, lost the lead, he's sitting over there with his leg crossed and he's holding his hand. Uh, he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. He said, Ray, you take it out, throw it to Bob. And he said, Bob, there's 18 seconds to go now. He said, you just dribble around till there are eh, five or six seconds to go. And then you can drive all the way, stop and shoot a jump shot. Try if you can shoot with enough time left that in case you miss it, maybe we can tip it in. Gene White, our starting center, said, well, Woody, if we're going to do that, why don't we get on the left side here and clear that out? Woody said, that's a good idea. That's what we'll do. I said, let's go over it again. He says, Kraft, you take it out and throw it to Bob. Guess who took the ball out of bounds? I'm supposed to have ice water in my veins. I took the ball out of bounds instead of Ray. He got it back to me. And when you hit the winning shot, nobody says anything about that mistake. But that's exactly what happened in the last 18 seconds of the game. Oh, that's great. And so Little Milan, like you said, Bobby, you know, high school enrollment of about 160, you know, takes down Muncie Central, who had 10 times the enrollment over 1,600. Um, and, and, and you guys defeat them. State championship. They won eight state championships now. They had four by then. Yeah, amazing. So you guys beat them 30, 32 to 30, um, like you said. And um, you mentioned Ray Kraft, your, your teammate, Bobby. You weren't actually even the leading scorer on your team that game. Um, Mr. Kraft. Was, up, he was the leading scorer on that, uh, that, that, that night. Yeah, he had 10 points the first half of our – we had 23 points. He had 10 points the first half. <laughs> well, maybe that's why he was uh, all gung-ho to shoot that layup at the end of the game, too, because he was feeling it. But <laughs> see, you guys go on to win it, Bobby, and it's just memorable in Indiana lore for, for that, you know, uh, upset of, of you guys winning the championship. You go on uh, to win Mr. Basketball in the state that year, um, and, then, and then you go on and, and play in college at, at Butler, University as well, where ironically Hinkle Fieldhouse. Um, what what kind of college player were you, Bobby? Well, at, uh, I knew the Hinkle system. That was an offensive system that Mr. Hinkle had devised, and uh, I did pretty well. I I uh, set the all-time scoring record. I set the single-game scoring record. I finished fourth in the nation in free throw shooting my junior and senior years. Uh, Selected to the East-West All-Star Game, uh, 12 from the East, 12 from the West that were played at Madison Square Garden at that time. So it, my career at Butler was, uh, was exceptional from my perception. Uh, I had, I held from 1958 when I graduated until 2011 when Matt Howard broke the record I had made more free throws in a career at Butler University than anybody in the history I played in 89 games Matt Howard played in 141 and he broke my record so that's not in there anymore I still have a record there though because in one of the games uh 
I, I had 41 points, which was a record at the time. I was 12 for 18 from the field and 17 for 17 for the free throw line. Nobody had made more than 17 in a row without a miss in a game. So, but you have to look way down there to find that record. Yep. No, that's great. That's great. So you have a, a, a great career, like you said, Bobby, at Butler. And then you go on and play for a little bit in the something called the National Industrial Basketball League. Yeah, nobody remembers that now, but it, that was a great league back then. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a lot different. Back, it was a lot different back then. The NBA wasn't anything like it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in the East-West All-Star game, I roomed with Archie Dees, who was All-American at IU for three straight years, number one draft choice in the region for the NBA. His offer, Matt, for the year was $8,000. Not quite like it is today, okay? There were only eight teams in the NBA. The furthest west was Minneapolis, now the Los Angeles Lakers. Fort Wayne, Indiana had a team. Syracuse, New York. Rochester, New York. The National Industrial Basketball. So they had eight teams uh, in their league. The National Industrial Basketball League had nine teams in their league. Uh, we had a team in New York, the Tuck Tapers. Cleveland Pipers was owned by George Steinbrenner. The Akron Goodyears, Denver DC Truckers, Seattle Buchan Bakers, San Francisco Investors, Wichita Vickers, another oil company, Peoria Caterpillars, and Phillips 66. Phillips 66 won the Olympic playoffs in 1948, represented the United States in the, only amateurs could play back then, represented the United States in the Olympic. They beat the Kentucky Wonder Five of Adolph Rupp. Adolph, my coach, Bud Browning, came back my first year at Phillips. He was a coach in 1948, and Adolph was his, Adolph didn't like that very much, but he too, Peoria Caterpillars won the playoff. They represented the United States. In 56, uh, Phillips won the Olympic playoff, represented the United States. In 60, we won our league on a last-second shot by way of one of my teammates and qualified for the Olympic playoffs. But that was the first year they allowed other than college seniors on the college all-star team. Before, it was just college seniors that could play in the Olympic playoffs. Well, the college seniors that year were a couple of names you may, again, remember, Oscar Robertson and Jerry West. The under, some of the underclassmen, Terry Dishinger, Walt Bellamy. Uh, uh, there's another one. Uh, oh, Havlicek and, and uh, Lucas at Ohio State. We drew them the first game, and they beat us by nine points uh, and eliminated us. Phillips already had reservations in Rome for the players and their wives to go to the Olympics. Almost got divorced after that game, but uh, so it was a it was a great great experience playing for Phillips. Not only did we have the league play the. 48 game league schedule. We did excellent. 
We went, went to Mexico for four weeks representing the State Department. We were in the Middle East for seven weeks representing the State Department. We had to look where the heck we were going in the Middle East. Nobody knew where uh, Damascus and, and Jerusalem and uh, Egypt and all those countries were. So it, it was a very broadening experience for a kid from a town of 125 people to be over in Egypt and uh, uh, playing golf and, and seeing some of the, uh, the pyramids. We got to go in the pyramids. But, uh, it, it, it was a great experience. Now, yeah. I had an opportunity to play with the Hawks in the NBA. I just told you Oscar, that uh, Archie's uh, contract was for 8000 He held out until two weeks before the season started and got 12000 uh, At Phillips, uh, I would have made probably 4000 4100 with the Hawks at Phillips. I started at 6000 and then we got an increase uh, of $75 a month after the first year. So it was a good deal for us. Yeah, no doubt. That's uh, and like you said, added a lot of great experience um, to you as well. So uh, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Bobby, that we touched on a little bit was just the, you know, overall uh, lore of the Indiana State basketball tournament. You know, up until the last year, 1996-97, it was that, you know, one bracket system, like you said, all the teams were in it and then they whittled it down to the final two. And I mean, there was just some unbelievable players and stories coming out of that. Like you said, yourself, Oscar Robertson, Scott Skiles, a lot of people, you know, around Big Ten country here, Bobby, remember uh, Damon Bailey. So you have that one class system, Bobby, and then and then it goes away. Um, and you lose the opportunity for the Milans and, you know, the other teams to win this, this huge event and create these awesome stories. So what is the, what was the initial reaction of the Indiana fans and, and schools and, and how has it progressed through the years now that they're in a multi-class system? Okay. Uh, well, first, uh, let me say that in 1979, the IHSAA had on their board of directors, uh, I think all but two of of them were ex-basketball coaches. It was voted down 14 to nothing to go to multi-class. Those that wanted the multi-class said, we lost this battle, but we will win the war. They came back in 1996, 97, the IHSAA decided to go to a multi-class tournament. <clears throat> the year before that multi-class tournament, the single class tournament that year drew uh, like 800,000 fans, okay? The first year of the multi-class, they drew 480,000. It has not been back there since. So the people spoke with their, the fans spoke with their feet. They just, they didn't like it. They still don't like it. Uh, again, it hasn't exceeded that attendance in all the years that they've had it. Now, <laughs> our uh, superintendent of schools, uh, principal of schools at the time, Cale Hudson, who just died, by the way, was 26 years old. And back in the 80s, I was invited at the Nebraska to speak at the state tournament uh, championship uh, thing. And he had gone, he was a professor at the University of Nebraska. And being a math uh, professor, 
He said, well, Bob, now you're going to have eight schools in the finals, so you'll have double the attendance. And I said, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> uh, but in any event, uh, it, it uh, and the TV, remember I said we had a $500,000 TV contract. It had three years to run. After the first year, the TV people canceled it. Said, Nobody's interested in it. The IHSAA sent out an invitation to every TV station in Indiana offering them the opportunity to uh, televise the state tournament. They got zero replies, none. A team, uh, uh, a, uh, a TV uh, station, a uh, religious station in Noblesville picked it up for $45,000. Now, they, they do have a TV. I don't know what it is now. It's increased from that. But it, it just has, it doesn't have the same excitement because you're playing the same teams that you played in your conferences. So it's more like a big conference tournament than it is a statewide tournament. Uh, I realize the other states have had that forever. And... Uh, but Indiana just doesn't, and nobody drew fans like Indiana did. No other state had those type of attendances or paying $25 on a 15,000 seat uh, uh, auditorium to, to watch a game when you get in for $3.50. It hasn't been accepted very well by the fans. Now, I do want to say this. It still is a great accomplishment to be a state champion. I don't, I don't want to take anything away from, I mean, the, the kids that are playing today, that's a great, great thrill, and it's a great accomplishment. Uh, it just doesn't have the excitement. It's more like today, it's more like it, they get exposure as if they won a sectional in the single class tournament as opposed to being a statewide tournament but again it is a great accomplishment and i'm proud of all of them that have won right like you said it's just different you know really bobby is the, is the main thing oh, it's, it's totally different yeah and so the, the, yeah like you said i was when i was doing a lot of research i mean damon bailey senior year they had forty one thousand fans in the rca dome and, and all sorts of things state tournament game <laughs> that is nuts um which is great so then the funny, funny, Bobby, you know, you're kind of going along here, probably just living your life like a normal person. And all of a sudden, 1986, this little movie called Hoosiers comes up. <laughs> and so I guess my question to you is, did did they contact you ahead of time? Did you know that this movie was going to be a loose interpretation of your Milan team from 1954? Or what was kind of the lead up to that movie? Well, uh, no, they did not contact me. Uh, they did contact Marvin Wood and wanted to know if he would be a consultant. But at the time, he was coaching the girls team at St. Mary's at Notre Dame. Didn't think he could take time off to do that. But you have to understand, Angelo Pizzo, the writer and co-producer, grew up in Indiana. His father was a professor at IU. He's from Bloomington, Indiana. David Ansfall, the director, grew up in Decatur, Indiana. And if you lived in Indiana any time from 1953 till it, actually till 1990, you lived the story of Milan. 
you lived, I mean, he knew more about what happened than I did, really, from a mm -hmm. state tournament standpoint. I did get a phone call. Uh, Woody Weir was a coach at Marion, at Marion, Indiana, and his granddaughter was in charge of uniforms. She called me and wanted to know what our uniforms were made <laughs> I said, you got to be kidding me, Mary. You think I know what I was just happy to have one. Uh, but they made a great move. I mean, it, it, uh, Angelo told me, uh, well, first, <clears throat> before the movie came out, it took seven years to before they could find somebody that would uh, put up the money to make this movie. I mean, they tried to sell it for seven years. Well, the reason yeah. is it got produced was at one of these events where they were showing some of their ideas a gentleman who had uh, migrated to the United States from Europe grew up in an alcoholic family and made a lot of money he told them if they would keep the drunk scenes in there he would give them seven million dollars to make the movie and they made it for eight million so it, it was a process and a long period of time to get that done but they knew what was going on i mean angelo and david uh they did a great job and angelo told me uh by the way they should they had a, a sneak preview before the premiere and it turned out to be a very successful movie, but they didn't think it was going, it was only limited edition when they first uh, sent it out. And there was a sneak preview and they invited our team to watch it. And after it was over, Angelo called me aside and he said, Bob, did we get the last 18 seconds right? We wanted that to be exact. And I said, yep, you nailed it. But that's the only factual thing in the movie, Hoosiers, is the last 18 seconds after the ball is thrown in. We didn't play any of those teams. But again, they made a great movie. Angelo told me that he wanted – see, every basketball player, not just for the uh, Huskers, but every basketball player from the opponents were Indiana basketball players. There was only one actor in the movie, okay? And he played on the uh, Hoosiers team. Angelo said he wanted basketball players acting like actors, not actors acting like basketball players. And I think that helped the movie along also. Yeah, that's a great point. They actually did that same thing as well, Bobby, if you ever saw the movie Miracle. Um, you know, with the 1980 Olympics story, all of those um, actors were actually hockey players that they taught to act. So you can tell the difference. Yes. Yep. So you guys never ran the picket fence, Bobby. You never had to make four passes <laughs> no, for a I, shot. I'll tell, tell you what, we had an out of bounds play that was similar to it. Uh, only time I like to take the ball out of bounds, by the way, if we had the ball out of bounds under our basket. We would line three players up on the free throw line, out of bounds player here and a player back here. And he would break off one of these ways and we'd throw it to him and they'd concentrate on him. The guy taking it out of bounds would sneak around those three players and he'd throw back to him. You got to shoot. That's, that's why I like to take it out. We called it, we called it number two. Okay. There you go. Nice. <laughs> well, I like their, I like their definition better than ours. Yeah. <laughs> 
but man, what, what a thrill Bobby for uh, an actual movie and, you know, to come out kind of based on what you guys had accomplished and, you know, arguably now it's one of the most popular uh, sports movies, definitely one of the most loved basketball movies for sure, but even not just basketball, all sports and uh, just, just a neat thing. It's got to be for you and your, your former teammates to have that out there. To give you an idea of what this movie has done. Uh, first, in 1998, a, a lady at Milan had an antique shop and she opened a little portion of it and had some uh, build some things hung up about the Milan 54 team. And then she kept adding to it. When the barber died, she bought the barber shop, which was next door to her. She decorated that with the stuff from the movie. I mean, from Milan team. And then when the movie came out, she collect, they got the largest collection of the uniforms, not just Huskers, but all the uniforms that they played. And since 1998, in this little town of Milan, she has had visitors from all 50 states and 38 foreign countries, including Saudi Arabia, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. And last year, I got four letters from kids in Paris, France, asking for my autograph. Two weeks ago, I got a call from a uh, sports uh, announcer in Spain wanted to know if I'll be on a program with him. So this movie Hoosiers have just extended this uh, worldwide actually. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. What a cool thing. And now we're kind of getting to the end of the show here. One more thing, back in 1954, I got mail addressed, Plump, Indiana. <laughs> that's awesome. I thought they named a town after you. <laughs> oh, that's great. So the end end of the show here, Bobby, we call it the bear trap. Um, after my last name here, and we just got a couple quick questions for you. So obviously, like I said, that you know, Hoosier is a huge sports movie, but what's your favorite sports movie other than Hoosiers? Do you have a favorite? Well, I'll tell you, the, the, the one that I liked uh, was Field of Dreams. Uh, I, I thought that was a great movie. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. That's great. I, I love that. That's one of my favorites, too. That's a really good one, Kevin Costner. So um, another question here for you, Bobby, just kind of around, you know, either after when you were younger um, and, and you guys won the state championship or after the movie came out, and the notoriety probably picked up again for you. What's the favorite thing that's happened to you or person you've met because of all of this hoopla around what, what happened and you guys accomplished? You know, people like you calling me after all these years and, and having an opportunity to relive some of the uh, extremely exciting, important things in my life. Uh, you know, getting letters from fans, uh, asking for autographs. Uh, it's just, uh, it's surreal. I, I don't know how to explain it. That's, uh, that, that's a nice feeling. It's always nice to be remembered. Matt. Yeah. And I heard you're a, a pretty popular character when the final four comes to Indiana as well. Like, <laughs> is, is that true? I had a nice conversation outside. He had always wanted to broadcast a game from 
Butler Hinkle Fieldhouse. He had never done that before. Who, who's that, Bobby? Jim Nance. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so uh, he had asked back when Butler was in the final four in 10 or 11, whenever they had it here in Indianapolis, he was the MC for the final four coaches and their teams. And I was in the audience and somebody came down the aisle and said, Jim Nance wants to meet you. I thought it was one of my teammates making it playing with me. And he said, no, I went back and he and I talked for five minutes or so. So when I knew he was going to call uh, the game at Butler, my daughter called him and he said, well, Hey, I'd like to meet Bob before we go in. So we met before he went into the field house when he first came out and had a nice, uh, nice conversation. Oh, that's great. And then the, the last question that we always ask our guests, Bobby, um, that we end the show with is who are your five favorite basketball players of all time? Again, not, not who do you think are the best, but who are your five favorite players ever? You, you know, uh, that is, in all the interviews that I've done, that is one question I have never been asked. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Uh, obviously they have to go with Oscar Robertson. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, and compared with Michael Jordan, uh, Oscar had 172 triple doubles. Uh, uh, Michael had 74. Uh, so Oscar Robertson would be at the top of the list. And there are guys from Indiana that, that I admire. Rick Mount, from a shooting standpoint, had the best shooting style I have ever seen. Uh, Jimmy Rail, uh, who played at IU, a guy by the name of Larry Bird uh, comes to mind. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I rather enjoyed uh, uh, Larry. And uh, there was a, uh, uh, the, uh, oh, I, I guess the Purdue guy, uh, Terry Dishinger. Uh, from uh, Evansville and, and Purdue and the NBA, those those five just come off the top of my head here. Uh, okay, there are others, but you know uh, that is a question I've never been asked before. You you've done well, man. Hey, there we go. <laughs> I, I'll take that to the bank right there. Well, well, Bobby, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. And at 84 years young, I mean, you're still you know, sharp as attack and spry as ever it seems. So um, appreciate you really taking the time to chat with this kid from Minnesota and, and uh, get, get your story out there and, and relive those days. So really appreciate it. Matt, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for calling. I, I enjoyed it. Take care.